Father God, what a privilege to um, be present before your open word. Thank you for a, a lifetime of riches and sweetness. Thank you for your ever-loving kindness. Thank you for the ready accessibility of it. Thank you for your patience and how much we draw from it. Thank you for giving us ample opportunity to see you through it. Thank you for teaching us and for making us more like your son. And we confess our inadequacy. Our uh, sometimes losing battle with sin in the flesh. Our unwillingness or lack of zeal to approach you even though we've been given access. And we pray that you'd forgive us. Pray that you would cleanse us from all this unrighteousness. That um, you would continue to change our appetites. That we would hunger and thirst for that righteousness found in Christ. And we seek it today. So help us find it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are looking at Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Oaths. I hate saying that word because it's really hard to say. So Andy said I should just say promises. But I'm going to have to say oaths because that's what's in the Bible here. So oaths. I'm not saying oats. I'm saying oaths, vows, promises. This is coming off the heels of what we discussed last week with divorce. Divorce coming off the heels of what we discussed with anger and lust. And anger and lust coming off the heels of what Jesus said he came to do, which is fulfill the law. So through chapter 5, Jesus is taking examples from the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, and he is showing us what righteousness actually looks like, couching it. Beginning of each heading, you have heard that it was said, or it was told to those of old, but I say to you, establishing his authority and his righteousness through and over the law, correcting the false, pharisaical teaching of first century Judaism, and actually revealing to us that the law is impossible for humans to keep. But he already prefaced the whole discussion of the Sermon on the Mount by telling us that he came to fulfill the law. So we're not only trusting in Christ to do that on our behalf, but we're watching him to see how he actually does that. Now, something different between him and us is that he did not have a sinful nature. His father was only God. It wasn't Joseph, even though he came through the womb of Mary. But you and I do. And so from the heart, at least we're going to break the law, at least from that. And then if that plays out in our members and our flesh, that's just proving what already took place in our heart. And Jesus is uncovering that for the people to utterly wreck any hope we had in the law. Which is the point. Which is why, when you get to Hebrews, as we'll get to later today, the Old Covenant is not, it has faults. And the fault is, righteousness for humans is found in the law. The fault with that is we can't fulfill the law. So it's doomed to fail us. But Paul says in Galatians that the, the, the purpose of the law from the beginning was to be your guardian until you received the promise of the new covenant, the new promise. And isn't that what we're talking about when we talk about oaths? We're talking about promises and vows. 
and I'll just go ahead and give you the, the main gist of what we're talking about today. Because if you just isolate this section of the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, I just want to learn about how to rightly take an oath or not, you're, you're missing the boat. There's got to be something bigger. Because we're not just looking to fulfill morality. Jesus is already telling us you're not going to do it. So what actually is going to happen is, sure, we're going to be told what the law is, what it looks like to be holy and righteous according to the kingdom of God, but we're going to be drawn again to look to a, a, someone who actually can keep a covenant, can actually fulfill a promise, can actually guarantee to you and I what it looks like to swear and mean it, or to swear and carry it out. I've become more and more aware as a father that there, I, I can't actually promise my children anything. I mean, in reality, I, I can't, I'm not guaranteed to be able to control every possible outcome to narrow it down to one. I don't have that ability in all reality. But there is somebody who does. That's why the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is so important. That he is ruling over and through every molecule and atom in the universe to accomplish his will. So we can't even read this book unless God 100% of the time makes good on his promises. Because it's doomed to fail from the beginning. From the garden. If God is not the one who's able to perfectly keep his vows and covenants, then the rest of the book is garbage. But if he does keep that, as we see as you move through the Bible, then there is a father that we can all look to to keep his promises 100% of the time. That's a pretty good track record. So, the, so, side note, for those of you that are still raising children, or maybe counseling your adult children, your goal is to always point them towards the good father. And I'm sorry to say, but you and I are not the good father. There's, there's, there's a word, there's instruction, there's promises, there's hope, there's dependence uh, that should be directed to somebody other than us. So that's, that's it. That's where we're looking. That's where we're going with this. But first of all, what is an oath and what is it for? So let's read this passage here. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Some of you might argue with that. Uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. An oath is a promise. To break an oath is essentially to lie or to not fulfill it. You also might uh, think of our current language, legal language, perjury. That's taking an oath to tell the truth, but then not doing that, right? And that's punishable by law. Well, Jesus is here quoting the Old Testament law that, look, you don't swear falsely, and if you do, you, you make sure to perform what you have sworn. Now, let, let's, let's go back to the genesis of why this is important, okay? Because the first thing that Satan does in his efforts to blind humanity to the glory of God is to call into question the validity of what God has said. Whether or not his word, his yes and his no, 
is legitimate. And so the truth is extremely important in this world and to God. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, Satan is a known liar. He's a consistent, constant liar. If he is um, opposite of truth, which is God, then he is a liar. And that's what he seeks to do, to lie to you about what the truth is so that you are blinded and distracted from seeing it, being saved by it, and glorifying God in it. And he hates God, right? So then he is about spreading misinformation. But back to taking a vow or swearing before the Lord. Leviticus 19.12. Here's where we're going to look in the law of how the law quotes this. You shall not swear falsely by my name, or you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 6.13 It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 23.21 If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So we'll get into the context of what Jesus is actually talking about here because he says don't even take an oath at all. And you have to keep everything in context that you read in the Bible, right? Because, he's, because you understand throughout Scripture that, that there is a time for vows. You ever been married? You ever been sworn in as a firefighter or a doctor or whatever the case may be? You take a vow. Vows are good. Paul swears by God. It's just that Jesus is, is talking to us about the fact that we have such a tendency to not fulfill or do what we say. We treat words cheaply. And so to, to swear on behalf of God's name and then to break it, is to associate lying with God who is true. And that's serious. And also, like I said before, it's really difficult for us to fulfill a vow because we aren't sovereignly in control of all things at all times. But we'll look at that in a minute. I want to give you an example of what this looks like and the danger that can happen when we make a vow half-heartedly or without full knowledge of all the circumstances. Or without the ability to control everything. <clears throat> Does anybody know Judges 11, verse 30 through 36? You ever heard of Jephthah? Of what he did? Well, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of, from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Okay, there's his vow to the Lord. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamin, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So he made a vow to the Lord. 
In other words, he tried to strike a deal with God. And he said, hey, if you give me this, I will do this. And I don't even know what this is going to be, but whatever it is, I'll do it. So this is a lesson to be slow to speak, slow to make those vows. Why wouldn't he just cry out to the Lord for help? Is not the Lord glorified when his people have victory? So you see the danger, the extreme danger. And I mean, there is integrity here as well on behalf of Jephthah and his daughter. They know you make a vow to the Lord according to the law, you keep it. Because if you break it, there is also condemnation. Now, what's happened here by the time you get to the Sermon on the Mount and first century Judaism is the Pharisees had relaxed that law because of things like this to consider only some oaths and vows binding. Only some things that you vow, or only some things that you swear by, you have to fulfill. So they would say things like, if you swear by um, the, the temple and you break that promise, then you might be okay. You know, offer this at the altar and you'll be fine. But if you swear by the gold that's in the temple, well, that's different. So then you break that vow and that's, that's big trouble. You can't break that vow. They made these distinctions. And, and what Jesus is doing here in this section, by the time you get to verse 37, is saying, stop making distinctions. What you say is what the truth should be. They, they disregarded the wisdom of Proverbs and tried to cover for the carelessness of their words. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his, restrains his lips is prudent or wise. This has been <laughs> so helpful to me in, in my natural tendencies to learn to stop my mouth and maybe then be considered wise, even though I may not be. By not saying, just saying whatever comes to mind, whatever comes out, just puking it out. And it says, look, transgression is not lacking in those circumstances. The more words that you utter, the greater danger and probability of spending uh, truth capital that you don't have to spend. Or by saying things that hurt. Or simply just saying things that are wrong. Had the privilege of golfing with some of you fine gentlemen yesterday, and uh, I, I started uh, yapping when we got on the first hole. And Mike said, "You got a competitive edge to you, don't you?" And I said, "No, not at all. I just like to talk." And th and that's that's the danger that I found myself in when I was even younger. Is I would just say stuff, just blurt stuff out, just to be outrageous, and ended up showing how much of a fool I was. So, you, so you, can, you can be deemed wise just by being quiet, not saying everything that you want to say. And then you can deal with the fact that you want to say those things. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in talking about why this law is in place, he says, the answer is undoubtedly that its main intent was to place a bridle upon man's proneness as the result of sin and the fall to lying. So if you put in place a consequence for lying, especially under oath, then maybe you have some more adherence to it. Because the natural tendency, according to our sinful nature, is to lie. To save ourselves. To save others. To, to misdirect um, persecution, to misdirect accusation, we will lie quickly. Which, I'll go off on a rabbit trail here. This is what uh, Chuck Colson, who was a part of the whole Watergate thing and was saved in prison. This is one thing that he gives as an evidence for the validity of the resurrection. It's like he said, look, you've got I don't know, seven to 12 guys involved in Watergate who were willing to roll over 
all right, and not continue the lie uh, quickly. As soon as, as long prison sentences were being threatened and handed out, they were very quick to roll over on each other. Okay? The apostles aren't, are they? If they're lying, they're maintaining a lie through decades and under intense persecution and to the point of death. I've never seen that committed of a liar. I've seen people committed to what they think is the truth. But I've never seen a known liar commit to that intensity to carry out their lie. But we're talking here, especially in verses 34 through 35, swearing by God. And in fact, what he's saying here is actually if you swear by anything in created order, you're swearing under the, the sovereign authority of God. So you're swearing by God. So to swear by God is, is hardly ever a good thing to do. Number one, we're not him. We don't have his ability or sovereign power to make sure that those vows are undoubtedly fulfilled. Right? I mean, we can, in our minds and in our hearts, as much as humanly possible, commit to that. But we have to continue to, to re-up that commitment, to remember that commitment, right? Because we will be tempted to break it all the time. Number two, we can't determine the outcome by our own will of all the possible outcomes. This is what philosophers talk about all the time. And you don't need to worry about philosophy, but they always talk about like possible worlds and possible outcomes. Because there could be infinite number. If you're just thinking of a situation and all that could happen or all that could take place. And you and I don't have the ability to narrow that down to one outcome. We set our minds, we set our hearts, and we pray that the Lord may carry that out, allow that. That, that may be his will. This is, this is what leads James to say, you know, in, in the discussion about you say you're going to go here and do this, and this time of year you're going to do that. This is what leads James to say, if the Lord wills is what we ought to say, we will live and do this or that. So I don't, when people say, you know, Lord willing, I take that serious. That, that tells me, hopefully, that they at least have some sort of elementary understanding that he is sovereign. So I hope to do this, I want to do this, I aim to do this. If the Lord wills, then that'll happen. Now, that's not an excuse to not do something. Well, you know, the Lord willed that the couch was more comfortable than the pew. No. He didn't will that. The Lord wills what is good. The intent here is to obey follow, aim to fulfill. We can never be sure what may intervene or cause that not to be the case. How often have you found that you're glad that your determined oath or promise or initiative was not able to come to fruition? I'll give you an example. Um, I was 18 years old playing a basketball game in Maryville, Missouri. Uh, I was going back and forth with this player on the other team, and we scored a couple bag baskets back and forth, like four. Like, I didn't score that many points. And, and something happened on, on one end when I was on offense that just ticked me off. And so I determined before, before we went back down the other end of the court that I was going to take that guy out. And so we go down the court. I'm the last one down, usually. And so, so I make it down the other end, and I go full steam at this guy. I'm just going to take him out into the cafeteria. And so I lower my head, and I get ready to start playing football, and he takes a step back, and I go flying out the door. 
And, and that was one instance where I saw that my determined will would have been a terrible idea to fulfill. And God sovereignly intervened and kept it from happening. But that's just one silly example of the fact that we don't know all things. We don't want all good things. We don't do all good things. And we're told in the Bible that, look, you'll have whatever you ask for if you pray according to his will. Because he alone is good. And he alone can fulfill his will. So let's get in line with that and not ours. And again, this comes on the, uh, on the heels of the divorce discussion. Because divorce is a vow or an oath that you should take to love and devote yourself to that person. And it calls you to consistently think seriously about what you have sworn to that person before you even swear it and surely after. Might the solemnity of the vow weigh heavenly, heavily upon a person if they hold an oath at highest value in terms of the words we speak? In other words, if we're going to be like God, then we better say things that we mean. Not just in the moment, but as we live. You, and what Jesus is going to get at here is your integrity in speech should always be without question. You mean what you say, and you say what you mean. That's the intent here. I hate double talk. You know what double talk is? It's when you say one thing or do another, or when you say two different things. I experienced that last week in a meeting, and it was beyond irritating. But we have to set the tone as people who are following Christ and living according to his kingdom that this is how we talk. So I don't need to swear to you that what I'm saying is true. You need to know by my life and the integrity of how often what I say proves to be true, i.e. it proves to be what God has said or who God is, that I can just tell you and you know that I'm telling you the truth. Now, here's the kicker, though. I'm a man. And so you have to be like the Berean Christians in Acts, and you have to filter everything through the truth. Because I'm prone to make mistakes. A couple of weeks ago, I blamed Jesus for something that Satan's doing in the world. It's just a slip of the tongue. But if you weren't paying attention... You might have caught that and said, hmm, that's interesting. Never thought of it that way. Well, I didn't mean to say it, first of all, but it was wrong, number two. So you have to be of high integrity in speech, but you have to also know that the only truth here is found in the Word of God. That's why I leave that uh, sign out the front of our church. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the what? Truth. What's truth? Your word. Isn't that something that Pilate asked Jesus? He's standing before him. And instead, Pilate is going to give in to the pressures of lies. And, and lies are going to overtake the, the uh, kangaroo court that Jesus endures as people hurl insults and false accusations against him. And eventually he goes to the cross. Now he goes to the cross under the sovereignty of God, but their people are responsible for the lies that, that led them to bring him there. You can spend the rest of the day reconciling that. But that's just that's the way it works. So Jesus is the one fulfilling the law here. Okay? He's, he's what it looks like to fulfill the law. This, this lying thing, this breaking of oaths, is we're prone to that. It is so, so prevalent in our everyday lives that sometimes you might not even know you're doing it, which is scary. You know, uh, my brother's here today. 
and, and <laughs> my dad's behind him. And, and I don't know if you know my dad very well yet, but, but I, I don't know if I ever saw him lose his temper. If I did, I forgot about it or maybe repressed it because it was so scary. But I, I don't remember a time when he did. But one thing that he always kind of got really intense about with, with me and my brother was, you don't lie to me. You remember saying that? <laughs> you don't lie. He, he was very intent on that. You don't lie to me. Because do you see what breaks down when you start lying? The truth. Nobody trusts your word. Nobody knows whether what you're telling them is, is the information they need to help you or to deal with the situation. The truth matters so significantly and intensely to God. That no one is going to get away with a lie. Lying is breaking the law, and if you break one part of the law, then you've broken the whole thing. Lying is listed in the Bible with list of, of homosexuality and murder. It's right there. He hates it. He's about the truth, and nothing but the truth. So, if we have to swear, if we have to make a vow, which at times we will, understand that, that Jesus knows that, all right? He's, he's not ignorant in what we're called to do in this life in certain instances. He is correcting something that was a gross misuse uh, of the law and, and disguised the righteousness in it, Okay? You ever remember being a kid, and uh, at least this was how it was with me and my friends, if you swore to God about something, then like you had to believe that person. Because you're not going to swear to God falsely. I don't know how that got into our psyche or into our uh, circles. I mean, we didn't fully understand that, right? But somehow that was like, that was it. But, and then all of us would break it, right? Because we would use that. As the scapegoat, well, I swore to God, so what, that was true, what I said. That's not always the case. But we do swear by God, through God, to God at times, because he rules over, our, over all, and therefore, therefore we got to swear by him, under his sovereign rule and under his authority. And Jesus says, don't take an oath at all by heaven. It's the throne of God, earth. It's the footstool of God, Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king, which is Jesus himself. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? God dwells over all. You know, it's not like he has like a tangible size that we measure. He is, he is so far beyond the bounds of space and time that it's incomprehensible how he measures the expanse of the waters in his hands, Job says. How he weighs the mountains in the balance. I mean, this is just, space is something that he has created. And he exists outside of that. And if you can't wrap your mind around that, good, because he's God. And you can't put him in the box. So he, he dwells, right? He just dwells in the universe. So much so that the heavens, they're his. He's there. The earth, he just puts his feet on it. I mean, this is all under him. So you can't build him a house you can't encapsulate him anywhere. He's not like those false gods of the ancient Near East, right? Where they'd build him a little dining room at the top of their pyramids, and then they would hope that they would come down and enjoy a good meal. And if they didn't, then they were doing something. I mean, it was just a mess. You, you can't. Solomon, when he built the temple, knew this. And so when he dedicates the temple to God, he understands that, look, this isn't a place that contains you. This is, this is a place where we go to meditate 
and worship and gather in your holy name. And it serves as a picture, a small picture, of the fact that we're going to dwell in you. So Jesus is the actual temple, right? So when his body is ripped open, the blood pours out and cleanses, and we go into the presence of God because Jesus is God. So he's bringing us into himself. And the Bible is replete with the fact that he is the temple. So all the imagery, all the things you see in the Old Testament law, this is a rabbit trail, but go with me, uh, is, is pointing to the fact that we are going to dwell with God forever. How? In Jesus. Okay, back to this discussion. Let's contrast our promises with the Lord's. Hebrews 6.16 For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So we're hoping that if we follow the law, that we're making oaths or swearing or making vows by God, and that is final. The fact that we have to do that points to the fact that there's a problem and that we have to do that. That we can't simply trust each other to say yes and we can't simply trust each other to say no. We have to have an oath to kind of put a stamp, a seal on it, and even that gets broken. But what about when God makes a vow or a promise? Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. This is talking about... Uh, the former commandment, the old covenant, the new covenant. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests with, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is God saying to Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So verse 22, this, G, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, God made a promise through Jesus, in Jesus, to Jesus, and subsequently to us. And Jesus fulfills the word of God and so proves that God's promise was true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then all this is based on nothing. Because we don't see the fulfillment of the promise. The promise being, if you go to verse 8 in Hebrews, uh, that, that the days are coming. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So Jesus uh, uh, presumes and proclaims to do this. And then he gets up the third day to reveal to us that our, that our sins have been paid for, that our lives and his righteousness have been vindicated, and his sacrifice accepted. Therefore, as he lives, so shall we live. Maybe that gets a little convoluted and confusing, so let's make it simple. God promised to dwell with his people forever. He did so in Jesus by cleansing us from unrighteousness, by putting it on him. And so what he promised in Jeremiah 31, in fact, what he promised in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the snake, that liar... That father of lies, the one who leads in sin and death, who holds the power over sin and death, he fulfilled in Jesus, 
who brings about what in his blood? The new covenant. The new promise. And if we have a track record through centuries and millennium of God making good on his promises, why are we going to doubt this one? Why are we going to doubt this one? Abraham, think of what Abraham had to go on. Abraham talked to God. He saw some amazing things. And why was Abraham righteous? Because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know what that means? It means he believed God tells the truth. So if God says this is the way it's going to be, if God says, I am going to clear your iniquities, be merciful to you. I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to make a congregation of righteous people through the one righteous man. I'm going, to, I'm going to dwell with you forever in my glory. Then what's he going to do? That very thing. And if we're going to be like him, then what we say has to have the intended consequence of real truth. Therefore, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Other than that, it's evil. If you've always got a qualifier to everything you say, I'm really concerned for the integrity of your speech. Why can't you just say what the truth is. We, you don't have to teach a kid how to lie, right? I mean, they just know. And, and the main reason that they do it is to get out of trouble. Now, if we have established through the scriptures that God is omniscient, he knows everything, omnipresent, he's everywhere, omnipotent, he has all power and all sovereign authority over all things, then why do we think that we can lie to him and escape his wrath? And that's a ridiculous thought when I say it out loud. So take that in and realize that's a ridiculous thought. He knows the words before they come out of my mouth. Jesus is, is revealing to us through his life here on earth that he knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows what they're thinking when they're thinking it. That's God. You, you are laid bare before the word of God, Hebrews tells us. You're, you're an open book. If you want to go about being inauthentic in your faith or in your speech, go right ahead. But you're not hiding anything. You can hide it from me. That's not saying much. But you're not hiding it from him. But back to this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, that doesn't mean there's no time for vows, right? We've all been married. Supposed to make a vow there. And at times I said that Paul makes a vow to God in Romans 9.1 and 2 Corinthians 1.23 and Philippians 1.8 and 1 Thessalonians 2.10 and 1 Timothy 1.10. God, or, uh, Paul calls God as witness that what he's saying is true. Now Paul, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, is this, this awesome great Jew, right? And then he gets saved and all is counted as Rubbish. But he knows better. He knows the law. And he knows that if I swear by God and break it, I'm worse than an unbeliever. So he's not afraid. In fact, he takes very serious uh, to do that at certain times so that people understand what he is saying is true. Test it, sure. But understand that I don't make... Uh, these promises or these, these comments lightly. I make them under the sovereignty of God. And he knows whether I'm telling the truth. James echoes this because he, he heard this. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He doesn't want people to experience the consequences of lying, either temporally or eternally. So watch your speech. 
you're going to be called to account for every careless word you've given. So the more words you give, the greater probability that a lot of them are careless, which is really scary when you're a preacher. Because I'm saying a lot of stuff for like 40 minutes. There's a lot of probability that things could go south. So that I have to depend on something other than myself and only say what's true. Therefore, mostly what I should say is this. That's why I say some of these jokers that stand behind the pulpit just need to read the word because every time they talk outside of the word, they lie or they say something foolish. And I could be prone to that. But we're... Look at God. This, this is his nature, right? And theologians call this the immutability of God. Just means he doesn't change. Which means he doesn't lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now, you might think, well, there's instances in the Bible where it appears that God has changed his mind. And I would agree with you. In fact, in this very book of Numbers, you'd see that. You see Moses' wife, uh, after God has decided to kill Moses for some of his disobedience, she prays and God doesn't kill him. You see Moses praying on behalf of Israel when they uh, create the golden calf not to destroy Israel and he doesn't destroy Israel when he set his mind to do so. And what is that? If you weigh those pieces of scripture against this pieces of scripture, do you have contradiction or do you have an explanation of how God relates to man? And I'd argue the latter. I'd argue that the, the, the communication has to be so that we understand that he has sovereignly willed that our um, intercessions, our prayers are a part of his sovereign will to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And God knows all possible outcomes and, and knows all possibilities of what could take place, but only does what should take place. And so he does say this warrants death at times. What Moses did or what Israel did warrants death. When, when he appeals to the mercy of God or when it's laid upon people to intercede for those that have sinned, he is telling us or showing us what the gospel's like. The, the, the thing that should happen is I should kill you. But because of the righteousness of my son and his intercession on your behalf, I won't kill you. You see how that works? So it's not that God changes his mind because Numbers 23, 19 says he cannot change his mind. He's too smart to do that. He wouldn't need to change his mind. But he will relent. He will give us what we don't deserve. But he'll declare what it is we do deserve. And he'll promise the opposite. And thank God for that. Because if he tells us what we deserve and then promises something else, I'm going to trust that promise in spite of what I deserve. So even though all signs point to I exist under this holy, righteous God who's eternally existed and creates all things by the power of his word, I stand condemned before it, but he told me that's not what he's going to do. And he's got um, a pretty good history of doing what he says. So I'm going to go with that. In Hebrews 8, carrying on with this idea of the ministry of Christ as a priest who offers things on behalf of the people. Hebrews 8, 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So the old covenant is, here's the law, fulfill it, and you'll be my people. 
the whole time knowing that the law is not going to make us righteous because we break it. That's our desire. So the new promise is, I'll make you righteous. You're not going to make yourself righteous. I'm going to make you righteous. So after we have established that we're the liars, that we said we'd fulfill the law, and then we didn't, then we're left broken and aware of our inadequacy and sin. And then he makes us aware of his promise of mercy. If he doesn't promise mercy, then we have nothing to count on. But since, his, since it does, we have everything to count on. You, you understand that the church exists because we believe that God is telling the truth? It's not that we hope. It's that we actually believe that he's telling the truth. And look, if you investigated apologetically or historically even, uh, you have no reason to believe otherwise. But until you see his glory, until you see the legitimacy of who he is in light of who you are and still deals with you, without disintegrating you, then you are able to see his promises are good and true, and we live according to those promises. We are children of the promise. Abraham, as well as us, inherits through a promise. So, don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. And go and do likewise. Don't heap up empty words, but say what you mean. I pray that you'd respond to the Lord now, and then we'll stand and sing together.